0: It is obvious by the noise level that you people hate each other. <laughs> it really is a joy, actually, to, just to stand back and listen to all of the conversations going on and see people shaking hands and hugging and greeting one another. It's a blessing to my heart. So I can't think of a place I would rather be on a Sunday morning than here with the body of Christ at Foothill Bible Church. It's a great great joy. Let me have you put your sandals on, as it were, and go back with me in time about 2,000 years. I want to take you back to a conversation that is familiar to you. It is a conversation that occurred in the very wee hours of the morning, a Friday morning. Jesus having been illegally tried several times by the Jewish authorities was now standing before Pilate for the civil phase of his illegal trial. And Pilate was questioning him repeatedly and and Jesus was making no reply until Pilate finally turned to address the question of whether he was indeed a king. And Jesus responded to that question, and he said something profound. He said, "...everyone who is of the truth hears my voice." Pilate didn't know what to make of that kind of a response, and so he replied, and I suspect quite cynically, what is truth? What is truth? And you know, his question has resonated down through the centuries. What is truth? We live in a world that plays fast and loose with truth. We've come to Expect it. We sort of build it in to our society. The political season is very much upon us, and and so we are preparing ourselves for the endless prattle of politicians promising us things that we know they have either no intention or no ability to bring to pass. What is truth? We even pass laws in our society dealing with truth in advertising. Truth in advertising laws. But even with these laws, we've all come to expect that advertisements are overstatements of either the quality or the performance of the particular products, right? We sort of take it all with a grain of salt, as the expression goes. We've all seen the infomercials. Take this diet supplement, work out 15 minutes a day, and you too can have a body like a Greek god. (laughs) Right? Buns of steel. And we laugh, because we know it's ridiculous. It's absurd. At best, it's an exaggeration, and if not an out-and-out fraud. This is where we live in. Deception is is such a part of our culture that we we regularly conduct polls and publish lists on the ten least trusted professions. The ten least trusted. And by the way, it changes year to year. changes year to year. But the epidemic of untruthful speech is not just out there. It's not just out there. It's, it's in here. And if I can be so bold to say, it's your problem, and it's mine. We live in a very, very untruthful world, and we are untruthful people. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're coming back to the Sermon on the Mount. We've been gone from this passage now for about two months. We're coming back. Matthew chapter 5, this morning, verses 33 to 37 The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' exposition of true righteousness. What is true righteousness? In this sermon, Jesus acts in the role of an Old Testament prophet, calling his people back to the Word of God and the requirement of that Word for an internal righteousness, not an external obedience to the law, not something superficial, not something that can be accomplished in the flesh. Jesus is the Messiah, and he has come to redeem his people and to establish his kingdom, but but in doing that, he did not come, he says, to abolish the Old Testament scriptures, verse 17, chapter 5, but he has come to fulfill them. He has come to fulfill them, and he has come to fulfill them by by reiterating their moral demands for an internal righteousness and preparation for his coming kingdom. He is giving the people of his day an ethic to live by until he establishes his great millennial kingdom. And it's not just an ethic for them, it's an ethic for us as well. An ethic to live by. It's an ethic that pierces through the external righteousness of the Pharisees. Verse 20, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom They were the premier law keepers. They were the masters of external righteousness. When it came to do's and don'ts, they were the best. And Jesus says it's not about do's and don'ts, it's about what's going on inside. Jesus establishes the real and true standard of the law. And it is designed to to pierce through the externals and to get to the heart of the matter and to call for a transformation that is so radical that it is possible only by a complete surrender and reliance upon the grace of God. Only by the grace of God. Now, he sets out here in chapter 5 the the demands of this kind of internal righteousness through a series of examples. There are six of them in chapter 5. And in each of these, he, he deals with first the Pharisaical interpretation of the law, and then he comes back and he says, but I say, meaning this is what's really the issue here. This is what's behind it. He deals with murder, beginning in verse 21. He deals with adultery. He deals with divorce. He deals with oaths. He deals with personal retaliation. And he deals with the requirement for love. 21 to 48. And when you read through this, it's really startling. The requirements that he, that he lays out for the kind of righteousness that is acceptable before God are incredible. And they are so profound, so deep, so unattainable. He says, listen, the issue is not about murder. It's not about whether you pull the trigger. Murder begins Where? In the inside in the heart with anger now all of a sudden murder is not just something that a small segment of our society is guilty of those wicked people now it's something we all have to deal with murder adultery divorce retaliation in all of these things The requirements are radical. The the requirements are impossible. Look at verse 48. Kind of a summary statement. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is designed to to tear us wide open. Because it's only when he destroys our, our reliance on our own external righteousness that there's room for the grace of God. And we kind of get it when we, we read on murder, you know, that one really penetrates. We, we read on adultery. We, we've talked about divorce for five weeks. And we're going to talk about the, the whole thing, verses 38 to 42, about retaliation and all of that sort of thing, and then this radical requirement of loving your enemies and, and so forth. But the section before us this morning is kind of interesting. It's about vows and oaths. Let your yes be yes, your no no. I've titled the message "Tell the Truth," and and in one sense, you, you read this through, and you begin, and you think, well, okay. I mean, the murder thing, the adultery thing, the, the retaliation, the, the radical standard of love—those things are those are incredible. But oaths. Eh. I mean, I don't stand around making vows does this really relate why did this doesn't seem to like rise to the same level of intensity right that's because we don't think very t- deeply about the topic of truthfulness see this section here 33 to, to 37 is about truthfulness so when we, when we kind of get behind the, the discussion and a historical discussion of that about giving oaths and making vows and, and things that for the most part we don't really engage in, but we get to the real heart of the matter, like behind murder is anger, right? Now we all relate. Well, we get behind the, the things about vows and oaths and we start to talk about truthfulness and then all of a sudden, whoa, huh, this relates to everybody. For all time, in all cultures, in all places, in all ages. The Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. The Bible also says in John chapter 8 and verse 44 that the devil is a liar and the father of lies. That kind of sets the stage. There could not be a more stark contrast between God and the devil. One cannot lie, can only tell the truth. The other can do nothing but lie and cannot tell the truth. That sets the boundaries. That frames the argument. So, let's just put it simply When we tell the truth, we emulate our God. When we engage in verbal deception, we're joining forces with the prince of darkness. That's what's at stake. So this is our background. And with this background, let's take a look at what Jesus says. Let's look at Jesus' requirement to speak plainly. Jesus' requirement to speak plainly as an expression of true righteousness so that we may allow the Spirit of God to convict us and change us with regard to our own manner of speech. Let's pray that the Spirit of God would take His Word this morning like a scalpel and cut away, cut away at those things some of which we probably are not really all that aware of. Let me read the text for you, beginning in verse 33. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. The requirement that Jesus gives here for, a, for plain speaking is twofold. It's twofold. It's simply this. First, cease verbal duplicity. Cease verbal duplicity and practice, secondly, verbal integrity. Cease verbal duplicity, practice verbal integrity. That's what it's all about. Let's take a look at that first, beginning in verse 33. Cease verbal duplicity. Again, he says, You have heard that the ancients were told. It's the same formula introduction that you see in verse 21. You, were, you have heard that the ancients were told. Now, just by way of reminder, You need to visualize a sermon. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to those that are close, his close disciples. He has chosen the twelve at this point. And he's speaking to a larger group of disciples. And he's speaking to an even larger group of onlookers. And off to the side are the Pharisees. And they have been pursuing him. Not because they believe, because they are looking for opportunity to try to discredit him among the people with whom he has a growing popularity. So when Jesus says, you have heard that the ancients were told, you need to visualize it in your mind, him pointing onto the side to the group of Pharisees standing over there. You have heard that the ancients were told. What he's saying is, you have heard from these, your teachers of the law, Certain things. But I say to you, what they have told you is not complete. It is not true. But I will tell you what the law really means. If you are content with their righteousness, you will never enter the kingdom. You need to exceed it. That's the picture. So he says. Again, he's returning to the same thrust. You've heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Now, unlike verse 21. This is not a direct citation of the Old Testament. Verse 21 was a direct citation. Here, what Jesus is is speaking about, what he is citing here, is not a direct citation, but sort of a a rabbinic paraphrase of the Old Testament. Certain passages in the Old Testament law, he he is speaking of in this paraphrase. It was verses such as Leviticus 19, verse 12, whereby Moses wrote, You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Or Numbers, chapter 30, and verse 2. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Numbers chapter 30 verse 2. Or Deuteronomy chapter 23 verses 21 and following. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what comes or what goes out from your mouth, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. It is these verses that stand behind what Jesus is saying here in verse 33. You shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. It's from these kinds of verses that the the Pharisees rightly taught that to fail to keep your commitment to God is sin. That is a correct understanding of the law, and it is a correct teaching. The Pharisees further taught, and correctly I might say, that, that when you take an oath, that is you make a solemn statement, and you affirm something to be true before God, you have invoked God's honor in the matter. You've invoked his honor. And and so an oath to an individual becomes a vow to God when God's name is involved in the promise. An illustration of that would be in Romans chapter 1, verse 9, where Paul says in in his introductory remarks to the church at Rome, he says, God is my witness, is invoking the name of God. Now, this is is a correct understanding. It's a correct application of these statements in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. It is faithful to the Scriptures as far as it went. But the problem here is that the Pharisees failed to understand the full implications of the command to be truthful. They failed to understand that. What they fail to understand is that the the commandments refer not only to people's relationships to God, but to their relationships to each other. If you have to be truthful with God, you have to be truthful with each other. And they miss that part of it. It's really a classic illustration of arguing from the greater to the lesser. If this is true, then this is true. God doesn't spell everything out. He expects his people to understand the implications of his word. Because it's not permitted to lie to God, we should conclude that it's also not permitted to lie to each other. But it's here the Pharisees, they missed the boat. They said you can't lie to God, but as far as each other, the Bible doesn't say So they taught that as long as the divine name was not invoked, it's okay to break your word. As long as you're not invoking the divine name, it's okay. Now, it's obviously very hard to conduct interpersonal relations in a world of liars, right? So they set up a very intricate legal system of oaths. And these were designed to lend credibility to the statements they were making to each other by the, by the occurrence of the oath. How do I know you're telling me the truth? Well, I'll, I'll swear an oath to it. But as they worked out this system, they, they figured out that as long as the divine name is not included in the oath, then, then we can swear the oath and still have the option of backing out later if we need to very complicated let me illustrate it it got to the place where it was so absurd one rabbi taught this i quote a vow made by jerusalem was non-binding but a vow made toward jerusalem was it's all in the prepositions that's what they tell you in greek right So when someone's making a vow, you have to listen carefully to every single word because if they say, I vow to to keep my word to you by the name of Jerusalem, well, that's not a valid vow. He can get out later. But if he says, toward Jerusalem, well, then he's committed. Sounds absurd, doesn't it? What kind of people would resort to such ridiculous legal shenanigans and maneuverings? How about 21st century people? Jesus hints at this problem, by the way, in verse 33, by where he, in Greek, places the the statement to the Lord. It it appears here at the end, right? You shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. In Greek, it's actually to the Lord you shall fulfill your vows. He's kind of highlighting the real problem, the real issue that's going on there. Basically, what was happening is the Pharisees were teaching the people there are two standards of communication, two standards of honesty. When it's with God, it, you have to be absolutely honest. But with each other, you do not have to be absolutely honest. You can cross your fingers and get out if you need to. Let me show you this over in chapter 30, or 23. Turn over to chapter 23, Matthew's Gospel. was there. It's, it's, it's more plain to see. Same issue, just a little more plain, or more obvious. Matthew 23 here, beginning of verse 13, is where Jesus begins to really call out the Pharisees, as it were for their external righteousness, which is no righteousness at all. He says it in verse 16, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. Or how about verse 18? Whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You kind of get a a peek into the window of their heart. I can square by this, but, see, that one you can't hold me to, but if I'd have said that word, then I would have been held to it. Jesus says, blind guides of the blind? What kind of corruption leads to to parsing words like this? It's the human heart. It's the human heart. Back to chapter 5. Jesus goes on here, verses 34 to 36, and makes it a little more plain. Because what he says here in verses 34 to 36 is is that even those oaths that that don't appear to invoke the divine name, they really do anyway. Because they assume a, a prerogative that belongs solely to God. So what Jesus is going to do here in verses 34 to 36 is he's going to disassemble this whole crazy notion of it depends what the meaning of the word is, is, before we know whether it's the truth. You've heard the ancients have told you, but I'm telling you, I say to you, verse 34, make no oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. He's saying, listen, it's all related to God. It's his, it's his throne, it's his footstool, it's his city, it's all related to him. You don't get out by just not formally including the divine name. The vow's is the vow, keep it. You have invoked God. Verse 36. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. This is the idea that, that you, you say, well, if, if this doesn't come true, then, you know, may my head fall off or something. Saying, you idiot. You idiot. You can't alter the aging process at all. That's what it means to make your hair white or black. Okay? It's not about your hairdresser. Saying that the aging process is beyond your control. Your body is beyond your control. It's under God's authority. So even if you think that you're evading the invoking of the divine name by somehow limiting it to yourself, you know, I, I cross my heart and hope to die and stick a needle in my eye, Right? He's saying, you don't control your body. God does. So you're still invoking the divine name. Therefore, when you speak with an oath, you're under full obligation to keep it. He just smashes that whole crazy notion. Parsing words. Look at verse 34 again. But I say to you, make no oath at all. Make no oath at all. What does he mean by that? Well, it's not a strict and absolute prohibition against taking an oath. Some people have interpreted it that way. Certain groups believe that they cannot swear an oath in court or anything like that because Jesus prohibits it. But that would be a shallow understanding of what Jesus is talking about here. It is a prohibition against the practice of swearing oaths while looking for the legal legal loopholes in the oath. That's what he is talking about. When he's saying, you shall not swear an oath, he's saying, you shall not swear these kinds of oaths. That is, that the disciples of Jesus Christ are to be characterized by integrity in their speech. Now, how do I know it's not an absolute prohibition? I know it like this. I know, first off, because God prescribed the taking of oaths. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. God said, You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. So God prescribed it in certain places. Beyond that, God participated in the taking of an oath. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. So God took an oath by himself. Pledged an oath to Abraham. Jesus was placed under an oath. Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 and 64. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. We know that Jesus took the oath because he answered him, yes, it is as you say. Jesus did not refuse to be put under oath there. We know the apostle Paul used oaths. For example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says there, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. God is witness. So it is not an absolute prohibition against the taking of an oath in certain circumstances that it's called for. It is a prohibition against using oaths to cover up duplicity, to conceal our lying heart by public oath. Whenever you swear an oath, whether God's name is is directly invoked or not, God is always involved in your oath. And so you have to keep it. To swear an oath, to make a vow, is a very serious thing. Very serious. So Jesus says, cease your verbal duplicity. Verse 37. Practice verbal integrity. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. In contrast to the prevailing practice of his day, Jesus says that his disciples are to be characterized by honest speech. Simple and honest speech. A plain yes or no answer is all you need to give. Just yes or no. If you say yes, then yes it is. You'll follow through. If you say no, then no it is. You'll follow through. You don't need to swear some sort of an oath to support your credibility. The credibility lies in the character of your person, a follower of Jesus Christ. Disciples of of Jesus must never engage in deceptive speech. They must never take the line that, that I only need to be truthful when I swear an oath. If I didn't promise, then I don't need to tell the truth. Instead, we must relentlessly practice verbal integrity. That's what Jesus says. True righteousness, inward righteousness, a righteousness that is only available through the grace of God, a radical commitment to truthfulness, says that my word is my bond. Yes or no, that's it. That's all I need. We need to cultivate a life in which we have a a commitment to consistent honesty in every statement, every insinuation, every implication of what we say. And when we live like this, oath-taking is unnecessary. There's no need for it. Because Jesus points out here at the end of verse 37, right? Anything beyond these is of evil. Possibly even the evil one. Deceptive speech, lying, untruthfulness. It comes from the pit of hell. It has no place in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. So what do we do with this? I think before we leave this passage then we need to feel the depth and intensity of it just a little more. So if you will permit me, I'm going to try to apply it to some specific situations in our day, in our lives. This is where your toes are vulnerable, and so are mine. So let me give you eight Places of application of a radical commitment to truthfulness. The first is what I call the phenomena of social swearing. The phenomena of social swearing. What is that? That is the use of expressions designed to lend credibility to our speech. Certain expressions that you and I use, and they are designed to lend credibility to our speech. And Jesus would say, there is no place for these. There is no need of these. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. So I gave you one earlier. It was one when I was a kid. Cross my heart and hope to die, right? Or well, here's another one. Conversations that begin with, well, truthfully, and then the person speaks to you. I've been tempted, by the way, to say back to that person, does that mean before you said that, that everything else you said to me was not true? (laughs) Truthfully, oh, here's one that's popular with the younger generation. I'm not going to (laughs) lie and then tell you something. Thank you for warning me. Or here's another one. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Because normally I'm so prone to exaggeration you can't believe anything I say. (laughs) So I'm not kidding on this one. This is what's called social swearing. It's, It's the modern equivalent of swearing oaths to lend credibility to our speech. Secondly, Exaggeration in storytelling. This is another place where verbal deception slides in. Exaggeration in our storytelling. You know how it goes. The story gets bigger and better every time it's told. The details grow. Usually the hero of the story, which tends to be us, also grows. exaggeration. It's really deceptive speech is what it is. It's deceptive speech. By the way, I, I can't help this, but you've heard the story about the one-armed fisherman. He caught a whopper. It was that big. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know how fishermen are, Don. exaggeration is deceptive. We should not engage in it. Here's another one. Prayer promises. Prayer promises. That's that's telling somebody that you will pray for them and not following through. Or following through by dashing off a very hollow and thoughtless prayer. That's deceptive speech. I'll pray for you, brother. And then you don't do it. Or you remember it and, you know, you remember it on the way to whatever, and so you snap off a 10-second prayer. God, you know, bless them. There, yeah, I prayed for you. There's another one. I'm going to be an equal opportunity offender, by the way, this morning. Social invitations social invitations. That's telling somebody that you will show up for an event and then not showing up. I'll be there. And then you're not there. Let your yes be yes or your no yo. If you're going to come, say yes and come. If you're not going to come, say no and don't come. Number five. Evangelism. The area of evangelism. This is slanting or shading or or leaving out hard parts of the gospel so that you don't offend somebody. That reveals a lack of integrity in our speech. Or speaking to somebody about the, the cost of following Jesus Christ and minimizing it. Not speaking about the commitments that, are, that are, it will bring, the, the relations that it may sever, the life goals that it will alter. Instead saying, come to Jesus and all your problems will be taken care of. No, come to Jesus and you will have many, many more problems than you ever imagined. But your greatest problem, which is you are dead in your sin and under the wrath of God and destined for an eternity in the lake of fire, will now be resolved. You will enjoy his blessed presence forever in heaven. So a little integrity in our evangelism. Wedding vows. Wedding vows. I don't know if this was in Jesus' mind, flowing out of verses 31 and 32 or not, but certainly it's a place of application. We make wedding vows, and we break them. People take them lightly. Represents a serious problem in our culture. What good is our word? There's another area for you. Excuses. Making excuses. You know, they say that excuses only satisfy the one who makes them, right? Excuses many times are a cover for a lack of integrity, verbal integrity. We give reasons that contain false or misleading information, for why we failed to do something that we're supposed to do. For example, I was too busy to accomplish such and such and such. No, the truth of the matter is I failed to prioritize my day in order to get it done. But it sounds better when I'm too busy because then I'm not at fault. So I will lie to you and tell you I'm too busy when I'm not too busy. 8. Business deals that do not turn out favorably. Business deals that do not turn out favorably. This is a place for your yes to be yes and your no to be no. So it kind of goes like this. If you're a business owner and you give someone a quote for work and you do the work and it turns out that you gave them a bad quote, Eat it. Eat it. And learn a lesson. Consumers. If you give a workman your word, fulfill it. Fulfill it. If You tell them you will pay them to do such and such, and they do such and such, pay them. Don't come back and try to renegotiate the deal. Look for quality problems that you either see or invent in order to get out of it. You gave your word to pay them, pay them. I mean, it's it's kind of a radical approach to the world. Psalm 15, verse 4. The righteous swears to his own hurt and does not change. swears to his own hurt, and does not change. When our girls were younger, they would make a babysitting commitment. Someone would call them up and say, will you babysit for me on such and such a night? And if they said yes, and then later one of their friends called and said, hey, we're going to the movies. You want to come? Dad, can I cancel the babysitting commitment so I can go to the movies? Answer, no. But, Dad, everybody's going to the movies. No, not everybody's going. (laughs) Right? Just everybody in the whole church except you. Because the righteous swears to their own herd and does not change. Our word is our word. Believe me, when we live this way, we stick out. We'll probably get taken advantage of. But that's okay. We'll deal with that when we get down to retaliation here next week. (laughs) Right? You kidding me? If I live like this, everybody's going to take advantage of me. Maybe. Maybe. Beloved, this is a radical commitment to honesty. That's what Jesus is calling for here. I I just sat down and came up with a few... I'm sure there are many, many, many places where this can and should be applied as we begin to think about what it means to live in a a way that reflects our Savior. What it also means is that it's not possible to live like this without the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ transforming our hearts. Not just in the moment of salvation, but moment by moment as we walk with Him by faith. We need the gospel. We need a lot of it. All the time. Day by day, situation by situation, tell the truth. Tell the truth. We have a little time left, and I'm happy for that because I really like that song, Jesus Shall Reign, and I want to sing it again. So while I pray, if the musicians would make their way back up, let us close the service by singing about our soon and coming King. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. It is Your Word, our Father, that shines the spotlight of truth into our heart and reveals the the darkness that still resides there. Oh Lord, there are those crevices, there are those places where the gospel light has still to penetrate. And I pray that Your Spirit would work this morning in my heart and in the hearts of my brothers and sisters here In a very unique way, Lord, for each of us. Where the radical commitment to truthfulness might become our commitment, our practice. Our Father, we know that, that it won't be a perfect practice. We are still a broken people, saved by grace through faith, awaiting the redemption of our bodies. The return of our King. And yet, our Father, You are through Your Spirit who uses His Word continually about the process of transforming us. So I pray today that You would, you would do just that. Help us to think seriously in the weeks to come about truthfulness at school, at home, at work, and in the marketplace. Pray also, our Father, for those people here this morning who do not have your indwelling Spirit because they know not Christ as their Savior. Work in their hearts, we pray, O Lord. Grant them eyes to see, ears to hear the truth. to Recognize their spiritual condition that they are lost and without hope in this world. And may you grant them faith to flee to Jesus even now. O Lord, be merciful to them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.